you know, we ultimately want to be to property management what Xerox is to photocopiers, right? We want to be uh, everywhere serving everybody, a national brand for property management. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers, to the first episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, CEO of Lead Simple. And this week, we're going to be talking to a world-class entrepreneur out of Detroit, Michigan. His name is Max Nussenbaum. I have interviewed Max before, and we are back to do it again. Uh, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the marketing processes, philosophy, culture, etc. that is kind of driving the growth within this organization. Max, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on, and thanks for the uh, incredibly complimentary intro. I've now got to live up to it. A lot of pressure. Oh, I'd say it's all true. You know, what's interesting about your situation, Max, is that you are kind of taking this angle in this play where there's a lot of pressure for growth. Maybe some folks listening might fall more into the lifestyle entrepreneur type category. And as we know, is the nature with the property management industry, it's a recurring revenue business. So you get to two, three, four hundred, five hundred doors at some point. There's a lot of folks that just kind of want to take a breather, go sideways for a bit, and this industry and business affords you that luxury. However, the context in which you are pursuing this whole uh, property management empire is a little bit different, and I assume that you do have some pretty ambitious growth goals. Max, why don't we start there? What What is kind of the the ambition and the growth goals um, for, for Castle? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, really to, to get kind of really big picture about it, you know, when we look at the property management industry historically uh, and even now, uh, you know, it's a super fragmented industry. Most players are just local, a few regional, um, but there's really no uh, national brand for property management. And that's actually, I think, common across a lot of the real estate industry. Real estate's kind of lagged behind most other industries in this kind of trend towards larger and larger companies, companies that cover more area, national brands. You know, we ultimately want to be to property management what Xerox is to photocopiers, right? We want to be uh, everywhere serving everybody, a national brand for property management. But we don't just want to do that uh, just for the sake of, of getting big kind of in and of itself. A lot of it really is about there's all kinds of new opportunities and I think awesome things you can do in the property management industry that are only possible, one, through some of the technological changes of, of the past era, but also really only possible at scale, right? So uh, I think about, and you know, this is certainly farther off for us, but I think about, you know, we have a lot of investors who have properties in multiple markets, right? But right now they're using a different management company in each market. There's no way for them to basically view like a highest level portfolio roll up. But really from their perspective, it's one portfolio. They want to see it all all in one place. Um, or, or to even go, go a step further uh, and think beyond that, you know, I think there's a really big opportunity. And I think this is how housing will work in the future for tenants to have effectively ongoing relationships with housing brands, right? If I lived in a castle property in Detroit and I loved it, but you know, guess what? Uh, I'm moving to Phoenix next year. If it was an amazing experience, why wouldn't I decide, you know what? I'm looking at castle properties everywhere I go and I'm going to have kind of this ongoing 
relationship with this housing company uh, that can be maintained uh, even as I, I move to different places. So that's you know certainly far off for us, but uh, for us, it's really about yeah, growing into a big company for for sure, but not just doing it so we can say we're big or so we can make a lot of money, but because I think there's incredibly cool possibilities for transformation in this industry that you have to achieve a certain level of scale to unlock. Wow, a lot of ambition there. I like how you're orienting around the customer. That really takes it to a level that I haven't even considered for. What you're talking about there is brand bias. It's the same idea behind saying, well, I want to stay in a vacation rental, but I'm going to start with Airbnb because regardless of what their inventory looks like, the experience that they're providing is top shelf. Same thing with buying from Amazon, just having a brand bias that is ambitious, but to actually get there to fulfill that vision and mission of being a nationally recognized brand. Put a number on it, Max. Quantify it for me. How many doors might we be talking about globally to fulfill that kind of a vision? Boy, a lot. So, I mean, if I was going to use like some rough numbers right there in the U.S., I would say in a typical market, you know, it's not like you need to control 100% or even close to that of the doors in a market. I'd say probably with let's say 2,000 doors per city is enough to have a broad enough base that, you know, with 2,000 doors, let's say you have 200 vacant at any given time. That's a pretty good supply for someone if they were going to, you know, start their search on Castle to see 200 doors. So let's say 2,000 doors and, uh, you know, top 25 metros in the U.S., that gets you like 50,000 doors is, I think, like a, a, a lower bound baseline to achieve that full vision. Um, but that said, you know, one of the things that I think is, is cool about what we're doing and about this industry and is something we, we very consciously chose when we get started is it's not all or nothing, right? I think you look at a business like a social network, you know, if you start a new social network, you're going to either be in the top three or four social networks in the country or in the world, or you're just- Or your friendster. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, we can level up one at a time, right? So maybe first it's just, we have a really great supply and connection in in the Midwest and we're in Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, but no one on the West Coast has ever heard of us. There's still scale opportunities on kind of a regional basis and you you grow from there. So uh, certainly ambitious, but it's also not like our only- way of succeeding is to get to those 50,000 doors. And if we don't do it, we're, we're, you know, we're in the trash. Well, so we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves here. We have the big ambition, but let's talk about the seed, the kernel of how you got into this and kind of the DNA of the company. A lot of the clients that we interact with, a lot of the property managers in the industry got into it by self-managing for their own inventory, felt the need, felt like they could, they could do better, provide a higher quality of service. Your story has some elements of that, but it also has some non-traditional elements. What's your background? How did you get into property management? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. It is kind of a mix of of that and and some other things. Uh, My background, in fact, all three of my co-founders' backgrounds, none of us are had backgrounds in real estate at all. Although uh, having now been very deeply embedded in the real estate industry, I think that's pretty common. And in fact, I think it's one of the coolest things about the real estate industry is that so many people have come into it orthogonally. It's not just like everyone studied real estate uh, management at school and then went to do it, right? So. I actually have more uh, of an arts background uh, originally. I always was kind of into tech on the side. My co-founders have more uh, traditionally uh, tech backgrounds, uh, co-founders Scott and Tim. None of us are from Detroit, actually, even though that's uh, where Castle launched and is based. We all moved there right after we graduated college, which was about five, five and a half years ago, as part of a uh, fellowship program called Venture for America that connects uh, recent grads to startups in sort of emerging cities around the U.S., so places like Detroit, Columbus, uh, New Orleans, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And we were working at at different tech startups uh, in the city. 
one of the things that's cool about Detroit is when you live in Detroit, you can't help but get interested in real estate. It's kind of sort of like the, the antithesis of New York, right? Where everyone who lives in New York is always talking about real estate, but it's, oh my God, I can't believe how much I'm paying for this closet. Oh, I have this nightmare story about this broker. And Detroit, it's totally opposite. Everyone's talking about real estate, but it's, Oh my God, I can't believe all of this cool stuff is going on. Wow. I could, I can, you know, uh, actually own a home for, you know, uh, $50,000 or, or I can buy one for even less than that and, and get involved in refurbishing it, uh, rehabbing it myself. It's like the ultimate kind of open to anyone DIY world. And that's exactly what happened to us. We ended up buying, uh, at auction a completely sort of trashed, uh, mansion, basically seven bedroom, 3,500 square foot home, uh, that had been abandoned for, about 10 years before we bought it, spent about a year and a half working nights and weekends, fixing it up ourselves, uh, knew nothing about construction going into it, but we uh, were able to learn uh, from YouTube, but also from this incredible real estate investor and rehabber kind of DIY network that's evolved in Detroit. A uh, lot of friends and neighbors who uh, sort of took us under their wing and, and taught us a, a ton of stuff. You know, we'd go help our friend build the porch on his house. And in exchange, he'd teach us how to refurbish hardwood floors in our house, right? That about, after about a year and a half that was up and running, we moved in ourselves, but also started renting out uh, the other rooms. That was kind of when we started looking at the property management industry because we thought, look, we live in this house right now, so it's really easy for us to manage, but this is a long-term buy-and-hold investment for us. We're not going to live in a shared seven-bedroom house with a bunch of 20-somethings for the next decade, so what are we going to do when we leave? And you know, we just looked at a bunch of management companies and on a personal level, there wasn't any that we really felt like we would be comfortable handing the keys to our uh, property to, both on sort of a practical level, you know, we felt like a lot of the business models of these companies were made it so that their interests were not aligned with the interests of the real estate investors who were their customers. I think maintenance markups are the most obvious example of that. If you're charging a 10% markup on maintenance, then you're obviously not incentivized to reduce costs because the more you can bill us, the more you'll make. But I think it was also just kind of a gut feeling level, you know, working in the startup world, you encounter people who are just really jazzed at what they're doing and seem excited to come to work every day and, and, and who often have some kind of real personal connection to, to what they're working on. And by and large, in the property management industry, the places we talked to, it just seemed like a lot of people who were not excited about what they were doing, who didn't maybe didn't really want to be managing properties. Uh, and, and, you know, there are certainly management companies that doesn't apply to. I'm, I'm sure that's not the case for many of the listeners of this podcast. And we've met a lot of awesome management companies too. Uh, but, uh, you know, by and large, it, it's certainly not an industry where I would say you can say, wow, like everyone in this industry is just super jazzed about what they're doing and, and, and like really excited. And I think that that plays a role too. And, you know, as I mentioned, we've gotten really deeply involved in this real estate investor community in Detroit. And we started talking about this to other people and we heard the same complaints from everyone, right? So many people we knew were managing portfolios of 10, 15 units themselves and to a dime every single one, no one said, I'm doing this because I love managing properties myself. They said they were doing it because they couldn't find a property management company that they trusted or that gave them the right level of transparency or that, that whose pricing made sense for them. And you know, coming from the, the tech world, we were looking at these companies and kind of thought, hey, there's a real opportunity to do things differently here, not just on the level of, okay, well, we could use technology to actually make a lot of this, this product better. Uh, but I think also kind of on the one level up where we thought, you know, look, there's kind of culture and values that we've taken from the startup world and, and maybe just stuff that we've internalized that we feel like are 
are really missing from a lot of the traditional real estate industry and it, it had the potential to, to really change how, how things were done. So sort of one thing led to another and, uh, you know, two years later, here we are. So let's, let's just fill in on some of that one thing led to, <laughs> led to another there. Sure, I, I guess I glossed over, I glossed over a lot of ups and downs and drops in the road with one thing led, yeah, led to another. Yeah, well, you definitely, you. you definitely did, but just this whole kind of, you're, you're mentioning the word startup, technology, et cetera. Bring it home for me, Max. Is this, is this a guy that just, a young guy that's ambitious and cocky and saw an opportunity or, or is this a situation where the DNA of the company is rooted in, in that true startup culture that comes with all of the good and and bad that we typically see in the in valley type companies yeah so i i i think it's a mix i mean i think one of the things that i've always loved about uh, startups and, and business and that is you know so interesting to me coming from you know the art world historically is in the arts world like you are a hundred percent about expressing something that you deeply feel inside and you can write a play that no one comes to see and that doesn't mean it wasn't a good play right and in the business startup world like, if you make a product that no one wants to use, like, I don't care how much it expresses something deep and true within you, like, it was a fail. <laughs> but at the same time, you're also never really going to build a great company or a product just by, well, I shouldn't say never. Maybe there are people who do this, but it's certainly not something that I could do or that I've seen successfully just by, like, doing some analysis of a market and thinking, hey, there's an opportunity here, right? And I think the cancel story is, you know, the story I've just told you up until now was an idea for a company that evolved from a very sort of organic, natural place based on uh, our own lived experience. That then led us to a point where we said, okay, hey, we believe there's something here. Now let's do some research and analysis to make sure we think this is a real opportunity. And we did a lot of like, you know, book and internet research, but really the best way to do that is we, we threw up a marketing site. We started reaching out to people and we just tried to get people to let us manage their properties. And they amazingly did. I remember our first 10 sales calls, the first 10 sales calls, because I was doing all the sales, I was just praying that the person on the other end wouldn't ask, how many other properties do you manage? Because if they asked, I was going to say like, oh, we don't manage any, you would be our first customer. (laughs) And just somehow, amazingly, we got to 10 customers with no one asking that question, I think because our website looks sort of professional. And then by that point, if someone said, oh, you know, how many properties? Oh, you know, we only have 10 customers. We're a brand new startup, but we seemed like a little bit more more legit. And in those early days, literally, it was, we had a website, but we were doing everything 100% by hand. Uh, You know, we would just manually update every owner had what they thought was a live dashboard and was really us just manually like updating all the information. And... Through that process, though, we learned kind of two things. One is we learned that there actually was demand for this. And I think a great proxy for startups is like, if you are going to build a successful startup, you have to be making something that people want so badly that they will hire like people with no experience and no product to do it. And that's what we discovered in, in property management. In many cases, the status quo was so bad that the, the, the fact that we were just a couple young guys who didn't really have anything to offer except that we would be really dedicated to you as a customer and we would do everything we could to go above and beyond for you, that was actually more appealing to at least a base of people who'd had bad experiences with traditional management companies than, than the alternative and it was enough to, to kind of get us started. I think the second thing that we learned though is that we were able to build a way better product by you know, we just did all the management by hand ourselves. So we learned exactly where the pain points were. We knew exactly where to focus our energies on making that process more efficient because it would just be like what's making us the most insane. 
And we were very close to our customers, so we were getting a lot of real-time feedback, and they were not shy about sharing it. And I think ultimately, that let us build a much better product than if we had sat down and been like, all right, well, before we take on any properties, we better figure out what kind of platform to build. Like, let's do a top-down analysis of how property management works. You know, that's never going to compare to just experiencing it firsthand. I love it. So you start off going through the typical customer discovery process, uncovering who are your customers, what are their needs, your dog fooding along the way, scratching your own, your own itch. You're getting validation both in the form of dollars, which is the ultimate form of validation, but also in, in finding how felt is the need. Ideally, product market fit looks like the product being pulled out of you. In this case, starting from scratch with no background. That that obviously is a categorically different situation than saying, hey, I've been doing this for 30 years. I have a ton of industry context, but now I'm starting off and doing it on my own as opposed to never done it before, you know, young couple of, of guys that are just kind of figuring out as they go. And yet you got traction with that. So pretty good sign. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there are, first off, I love that quote uh, that you're referencing about the market pulling product out of startups. I, I think it's very true. And I think there are certainly pluses and minuses to both approaches. I know a lot of founders who have been heavily experienced in, you know, the trucking logistics industry, and they discover these problems. And they say, hey, I'm going to start a company to, to kind of solve these there's definitely benefits you gain from experience. I think on the flip side, the benefit of a lack of experience is you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that a thing, quote unquote, won't work when really it just didn't work like that in the past, but maybe it would now. And so you have that kind of beginner's mind. So there's a lot of, I would say, unforced errors that we made from being new and inexperienced. But I think we also got a lot of value because we didn't come to the market with a lot of the preconceptions that most people have. I love it. So the question why just comes a lot more naturally because you don't have a long list of reasons why not. Makes a ton of sense to me. And, and it's funny because we now we see that now even within Castle where, you know, I look at some of the people on our team who've joined in say the past six months and you know you look at internally, I would say about half the stuff we do we do, and there's a really good reason, right? We tried a bunch of alternatives and this thing worked the best. We really thought about it and decided we were going to do things this way. The other 50% of things we do a certain way just because like someone did it that way once and then you just kind of keep doing it because you got to do it. And suddenly it's a year later and we've quote unquote always done it that way. And making sure that people who have joined the team post the era of us always doing things a certain way. One of the hardest challenges is making sure everyone understands that like, Half this stuff we just started doing and keep doing a certain way for no reason. You should be aware of that and, that and and don't in your mind think this is how we have to do things because it was literally a random choice that is for sure not the optimal way. Uh, it's, it's hard to, to maintain that mindset both in myself and in other people. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. One thing we've done internally at times is intentionally doing things in an even more overtly wrong way than we could have so as to force change down the road. For example, naming conventions. When we first launched Lead Simple, we actually called it Lead Connector because we thought that was such a horrible name that it would force us, we would feel a, a really strong urge to change it sooner rather than later. Whereas if we had settled on something we felt was kind of so-so, we could have prolonged the disaster. So yeah. that's, a, that's a great idea. Uh, it reminds me of whenever we do a, a team or company-wide like brainstorming session, I always will start out by just saying a couple intentionally terrible ideas just to set the bar really low so people, no one thinks, oh man, that I, my idea isn't as good as that because the ideas that I said, it would be impossible for anyone's ideas to be worse. So on this point of culture, what's the headcount within Castle right now? 
So we are a team of 18 uh, full-time, uh, well, at least full-time uh, domestic. Then we have about 30 um, customer support reps in the Philippines. So we have a pretty big Philippines team. This is not something that we've outsourced to an agency or a call center. We hire everyone, every person on this team individually. We have individual relationships with all of them. They're, they're in our Slack. They're really a part of, of the company. And then we've got another uh, 15 or so. We call them stewards, but those are basically 1099 independent contractors who do on-site, uh, not, not maintenance jobs, but sort of unskilled on-site jobs like uh, helping a tenant with a move out or picking up keys or dealing with that one city agency where you have to show up in person on the ground uh, jobs at, at, at property. So yeah, kind of a, a sliding scale team, depending on how you, you interpret it. Doesn't feel right to say we're just a team of 18 and, and uh, leave all those other people out. But it would also be very misleading to say we're a team of 60, given the, the varying employment statuses. Very, very interesting. Okay, so the stewards, this is kind of like a on-demand labor force, something along the lines of a Uber, but instead of driving, they're fulfilling property management related tasks? Yep, yeah, exa- exactly, pretty much. And, and I think, you know, the cool thing for us is, there aren't a ton of those tasks that need to be done because they really mostly take place when a property is vacant. So we're able to serve a pretty large base of customer of properties with a pretty small base of stewards. And uh, our actual number one uh, lead generation channel for stewards is tenants in castle properties. So there's a nice kind of cycle uh, vibe going on there where you know we have we have uh, tenants who have a relationship to us in, in more than one way. What's your service area right now? Yeah, so we are, uh, you know, based in, in downtown Detroit. Well, really, uh, the new center neighborhood, but very close to the downtown area. We go about 45 miles outside of, of Detroit. So basically the entire uh, Southeast Michigan area. And um, we're just in Michigan right now. We're, we're prepping for a launch in our second market, either uh, late this year or beginning of 2018. Fascinating. Okay. Now, so you talked a little bit about the segmentation of the types of tasks that stewards handle over in the Philippines. What types of tasks do you have uh, the VAs over there handling? I'll kind of start by talking about it at a very high level. Basically, a, a big belief of ours around property management is that uh, historically, management firms have over-invested in, sounds, it sounds dumb until I explain it, over-invested in actual property management, meaning they are spending, let's say, 90% of their time like actually taking care of stuff at properties and only 10% of their time on customer relations. And really, our belief is that actually what most investors want out of their management company is, sure, obviously, you have to do a competent job actually managing the properties, but managing your relationships with your clients is also really important. And so our kind of big high-level goal with Castle is we want our account managers, you know, these are like very smart, hardworking people who graduated from top colleges. Like we want them working on the highest leverage tasks they can be. And if one of our account managers is driving out to a property to look at, uh, I don't know, just make sure that uh, the grass hasn't grown too far, or if they are filling out some form, or if they are, you know, calling someone else to figure out where the keys to a new property are, that's not a good use of their time. We want them focused on providing the services to our customers that that only someone who's really deeply embedded can can provide. And that means everything else we want to either automate with technology, uh, break down into its small component piece so that uh, someone in, in the Philippines can, can handle it, or maybe eliminate completely if it's not necessary, right? So that could be anything from, uh, you know, for example, uh, when a maintenance issue comes in, 90% of issues, it's very straightforward to figure out which contractor to assign them to, right? So we have a, a group of maintenance specialists on our Philippines team who are taking calls from 
uh, tenants to report issues, uh, documenting those issues, assigning them to contractors. And then sure, occasionally you have the rare super complex issue where maybe someone higher up needs to, needs to take a look. Same thing uh, around uh, rent. We've got automated reminders to tenants uh, before rent is due. If someone needs to call and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I can you give me an extra day? Uh, you know, rent's going to be a little, I need an extra day this month or, or hey, I, I'm, I'm confused about how I can make a payment. You know, that's a perfect kind of call for someone on the Philippines rent team to handle. And then, you know, occasionally you'll get the really more complex issue that, that can be booted up, up the chain. So, uh, that's kind of how we're structured internally. And a key part of that is our technology where what our, our system does is it basically, breaks property management down into its smallest component tasks so that they can be dealt with in the most efficient way possible, right? So uh, reference checks are a great example. We have someone on our Philippines team whose entire job is checking landlord references from previous applicants. Uh, the, the technology just basically queues up the next reference uh, for her automatically. And also, she's way better at checking references because that's all she does. She's way better than an account manager would be at this point because she's really learned, here's what you look for, here's what you ask for, uh, just by nature of, of we all get much better at something when we, when we do it a lot. So that's kind of how we're, how we're structured and how we think about it. I love it. So one of the, the things that I'm hearing there is you're doing a lot of segmentation, what some people may call departmentalization. But what's interesting to me about departmentalization and segmentation of tasks is that it doesn't even require having dedicated personnel. The value of segmenting the work and the opportunity there is to be able to d- define both the value and the cost associated with a given task to look at the constituent pieces across the business and decide what kind of labor Labor is necessary to get this job done. And either, obviously, if at scale, if you can departmentalize where it makes sense, but even if you don't go through that process of having different separate departments, the exercise of understanding and isolating the value and the cost with each, not only unit of the business, but subtasks within the business makes a ton of sense. So that's really cool. That's a kind of a starting reference point for you guys. That's, that's exactly right. And I think it's worth pointing out, uh, you know, clarifying the, the way we did this, just like you're saying, the compartmentalizing and specialization, that came first, right? So even when it was just me, Tim, and our, our uh, second hire, Amanda, managing all the properties, we were compartmentalizing and breaking things down. And that's what taught us, okay, as we build out the organization, how do we divide it up? How do we structure it? We were able to get there because we started with the, the compartmentalization. So I think you're exactly right there. How many doors are you guys managing right now? We are currently managing uh, about 700 doors. And what percentage of that is uh, is not single family? About 15% not single family, but even there, you're looking at mostly duplex up to quadplex. And then we have a few kind of medium-sized apartment buildings, but really our... Our sweet spot is single family home all the way up to a small apartment, maybe 15 or 20 units. Above that, you start to get into sort of custom territory where things aren't as, as one size fits all. And just be, by the nature of the housing market in Southeast Michigan, that's mostly single family, uh, you know, duplex, triplex, quadplex. So what's interesting is that when you mention that door count, I know some people are going to hear that. And they're also going to hear the 18 full-time staff. 30 VAs in the Philippines, 18 or so stewards. 
to some, that's going to sound like you're over hiring, over staffing, et cetera. I know that what you're doing in terms of structuring organization is not just for today, but for tomorrow. Do you expect the ratios in terms of people to properties to change significantly over time? Or do you think that those ratios will hold constant as you add on another one to 2000 doors? Uh, it's, it's a mixture. So I think kind of first off, I, you know, the way we kind of look at it is we, we look at our team in kind of two sort of buckets, right? One is, okay, our operations team. What is just like strictly necessary to keep these properties, uh, managed, right? And our current operations team is 11 people and that's split between dedicated account managers who are actually overseeing units and, uh, people who, oversee uh, parts of our network, like, uh, you know, we have a head of contractors, someone who runs the steward program, etc. Um, and then, you know, the other uh, chunk of people on the team are people who are working on either growth or on software development. So their job is really 100% about investing in the future. And on the operations team, it's mixed. What, what we're really looking at is what we're really thinking about is, okay, well, it started out being, okay, how many properties can one account manager oversee? Because uh, that was the clear opportunity where we thought technology could make people a lot more efficient. We've actually now changed that where it's not really just looking at number of properties. We actually have sort of a fairly complex equation that takes into account the number of properties in an account manager's portfolio, the number of customers, because uh, working with one customer with 100 properties is obviously much less time consuming than working with 100 customers, each of whom has one property. And uh, various attributes of the property. So uh, are there open uh, listings and vacant properties? Usually more work. Are the customers brand new because customers tend to need more support early on, uh, et cetera. And all that's basically building a dynamic formula that so that we can assign uh, new customers and new units to the account manager who, one, has the, the right mix of uh, workload and also just is the best fit for, for that customer. That's getting a little, little complicated, but high level, basically, there, this formula spits out a number that is that account manager's essentially effective capacity for managing units. That's something that's been going up over time since the start of Castle and is something that we want to keep driving at. We ultimately believe, you know, we're nowhere near the efficiencies that can come, one, as our technology gets built out, but two, there are just certain economies of scale that come as you grow. Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur, if you're interested in leveling up your sales marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs and stay on the bleeding edge of the industry, you need to be at the PM Grow Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to www.pmgrowsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. See you there. Max, I would be remiss not to mention that you guys have taken on some funding and along with that funding presumably comes a growth expectation. We talked about some of your ambition getting to 50,000 doors at some point, hopefully beyond that mark. But the question becomes, how do you do it? You're clearly investing in service. You mentioned previously uh, with the example of, of maintenance markup that you want to have alignment of incentives. I interviewed Noel from Runner's Warehouse the other day. They mentioned that as well. And when people hear alignment or words like empathy, it can it can sound like it's really pointing at altruism, which 
hopefully to some degree is the case, but in large part, it's about value and alignment of value keeps everybody happy and keeps the dollars flowing. So presumably you're focused on providing a higher service level, which translates to happier customers, which translates to more referrals. How do you think about the growth of getting to where you want to be long-term? How does word of mouth, how does organic, how does paid, how does all of that fit into doing what to date no single property management company has done in terms of achieving that kind of scale? You know, you know first off, uh, while I don't mean to downplay our ambition in any way, I do think it's important to point out that for a, a many, many, in fact, I would say the vast majority of property management companies, the reason they haven't done this is just because they haven't even chosen to pursue it, right? So I'm certainly not sitting here and saying, oh my God, there's a hundred thousand management companies. They've all tried to do this and failed, but we can do it. Like we're smarter or better than those guys. I think property management companies have historically just, they've been trying to build a different kind of business and uh, haven't really even attempted to, to go, go down this road. Uh, and it's also one that I don't think has been possible really in, until the past few years with, with a lot of technological shifts. So, uh, we kind of look at it in a couple ways. One, you're absolutely right. It starts with providing a great product, a great service. Our number one uh, growth channel has been referrals and word of mouth, uh, and we aim to, to, to that to continue. The second big piece there is it's not just about signing up new customers. Anywhere from 20 to 50% of our growth in a given month comes from existing customers expanding, adding more properties with with Castle. And we, we love that because, uh, one, obviously... It's um, just way easier for us to help a new customer, an existing customer expand than to close a new customer. Um, but I think more importantly, you know, we're in this business to help other real estate investors. There's nothing better than when someone comes to us and says, hey, look, like working with Castle is going so well that I'm able to expand my portfolio. And I'm really excited about, about doing that. Like that's just a sign that we're doing our, our job right. We do everything we can to help our existing customers expand their portfolios. Uh, now, uh, you know, we have a, a fairly large network of realtors and other sellers that we connect customers to. We help customers sell their properties to other Castle customers. Uh, and something that we'd love to do down the road is actually use more of the data we're collecting in a really smart way uh, to give people intelligent recommendations about expanding their portfolio. Uh, and then the last piece is, uh, you know, kind of other traditional growth channels, right? We get a lot of stuff from organic search, we get a, uh, a small amount, but it's not nothing from, from uh, you know, AdWords and other types of online advertising. We have a big presence at a lot of local uh, real estate meetups. Um, this is a pretty local business, and it's funny. That's something I originally thought we'd have to move past as we scale, but I've actually talked to a lot of pretty big companies, like Instacart is a great example, where it's still local for Instacart. They launched a new market. They got a dude running around building relationships with the grocers, uh, and so you can really scale a company uh, even and, and maintain that kind of local involvement, which I, I think is really cool. And we're just starting to uh, get get into content. Haven't done a ton of it yet, but you know we've collected a lot of expertise and knowledge that isn't available anywhere else in in any kind of convenient form. And so we're not trying to do the you know top ten recommendations for writing at least the kind of like landlord focused content that's everywhere, but trying to think where can we add unique value. So a great example is. We have a compliance guide. It's basically a two-page document, and it lists every city in Southeast Michigan and what their rental registration requirements are. So do they require registration? Is there a fee? Do they require inspection? If so, is there a fee? How often do you have to redo the inspection? Uh, can you pay online, et cetera? Uh, and that's kind of knowledge that, I mean, that knowledge all exists 
somewhere online, but I don't know any other way to get it other than contacting those rental registration departments one at a time, some of which don't even have their their information online. And that's stuff that we had to pull together just to run our business. And if there's an opportunity to release that to our, our customers and, and other people in a way that would be valuable to them, then, you know, uh, it's it's why not do that? We've already kind of built the, the knowledge base. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I find that people think about content in one of two ways. Most folks tend to think about content as a net new lead gen strategy, but of course it can also be used for lead nurturing, for conversion and i.e. sending value added information to your existing subscribers, customers, increasing customer sat, customer referrals, et cetera. For you guys, since word of mouth has been a meaningful part of your growth, both in terms of taking on new properties for existing customers as well as referrals, how do you actually tease those out? It, it would be ideal to say, just have great service and everybody just sends them your way. But are there any specific tactics or strategies that you guys use to actually get people to proactively hand you more properties or send you referrals? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're right. It, it, it starts with building a great service, but you, you, it's not, you know, if you build it, they will come. It's a, a little more, more complicated than that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We do offer, you know, some financial rewards to people who make referrals to us, but we found that's really never the primary motivator. Uh, people are motivated to refer because they, you know, they want the people they're referring to to, to have a good experience. And so for us, it's really in a couple ways. So I'll touch on both expansion and referral. So for expansion, existing customers adding new units, the biggest thing that we try to do is just start by providing value rather than creating an ask, right? So if we have a customer who's looking at new purchases, we'll advise them, we'll give them some insights on what neighborhoods we think are good, we'll give them purchasing recommendations. We're not getting any payoff for that right away. We're only going to you know, benefit directly from that if the customer actually goes through with a purchase and that property comes on board to us. And you know, a lot of times they don't go through with a purchase or our advice is, hey, it'd be great if we could say you should buy this property because then we would get to manage it and we'd make the money. But our honest opinion is you actually shouldn't buy this. So that's what we're going to tell you. But uh, I think that ultimately that, that builds trust. And it also means that our customers, when they're thinking about buying a new property, they're inclined to come to us first just to get knowledge and advice. And it's not immediately a transaction, which I, I think helps. And on the referral side, I think the most important thing for us is just having a lot of touch points and, and staying in the back of someone's mind. Because most people are not going to be ready to make a purchase decision right away, right? It's very common for us to, someone to hear about Castle and they'll say, look, like you guys seem really cool. I've got this existing management company. I don't love them. I wouldn't choose them again if I was starting from scratch, but things are going fine. I don't want to rock the boat. But then, you know, four months later, there's some disaster. And that's when they think, all right, you know what? It's time to give Castle a try. And that's where we see, I think, being really present in the local community that has the most value it's very rare that we will be at a real estate event and we'll meet someone for the first time and then they'll immediately become a customer. But what is common is that we'll be at one of these events and people will come up and say, oh, you guys are Castle. My friend told me about you guys or I, I've been reading about you guys online. And then they'll start a, a conversation with us and then you know we'll be able to nurture that lead and, and, and then become a customer down the road. So it, it's kind of about making sure that we are... are uh, in people's faces in the best possible way from from a couple different angles. Okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. So it's the long play, it's the snowball effect, takes time and patience. I want to transition now, Max, to wrapping up with some rapid-fire questions. So, Max, first question is, what is the single biggest challenge you expect to face growing this company? 
<laughs> I think the single hardest personal challenge of, of being a founder, of being a CEO is managing your own psychology. That's like one level up from all the other challenges, challenges with growth, challenges from launching new, new markets. The absolute hardest thing is staying energized and keeping believing when, when things are going poorly. The inner game. I love it. Okay. Totally makes sense. I very much agree with you. I hired a business coach a number of months back. It's made a huge difference for me. And really, it's largely just about that, managing the inner game and mindset. Question number two, Max, how much is too much to pay for a new client? Let's take your average customer profile. How much is too much to pay for a customer acquisition cost? So for us, we don't want to be spending more than 400 450 on acquiring a new customer. Who do you learn from, Max? Who, whose advice has made an impact on your life as an entrepreneur within the last few years? Okay, going to shout out a couple of people here. Uh, number one would have to say far and away, uh, most influential are my, my co-founders, Scott and Tim, and our team. Uh, I learn more from them uh, than, than from, from anyone else. They push me in ways that, that no one else can. Other than that, uh, definitely uh, we have a couple investors who've been uh, super uh, valuable uh, to us. I'll shout them out in case they listen to this podcast. Uh, all the partners at Y Combinator, uh, David Wyden at, at Coastal Ventures, and Eric Ford at, at GMO VP have been hugely influential. And then last, I just try to read a ton. Uh, and I try to read not just, yes, like startup news and articles about business, but also stuff that has no obvious connection to that. Um, but that I think that you can learn a ton from. And in fact, it's really important to be learning from orthogonal fields as well. Ooh, orthogonal fields, cross-application. I'm tracking with you, man. Any books you would shout out you've read over the last year? Ooh, the, well, this is actually a startup book, but for sure, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by uh, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, the VC. This is a super common uh, recommendation, but I uh, found it super valuable. Definitely the best book about startups ever written, in, in my opinion. I also would say I really enjoy reading biographies of other entrepreneurs, but from very different eras. So I really enjoyed... There's a, a, a bio of Walt Disney by a guy named Neil Gabler. I think it's just called Walt Disney. And Ron Chernow has a biography of Andrew Carnegie uh, that I also uh, thought was awesome. I think in some ways, in cases, you learn more from reading about entrepreneurs from a totally different era because it just forces you to think about things in a bit of a different way. Absolutely. Common traits, common patterns. Don't aggrandize your own unique situation and problems. People have solved many of these same issues before. Next question. What's the number one thing that you see property management entrepreneurs doing wrong? <laughs> Not existing. Does that, does that count? Uh, they're just, I think there aren't nearly enough, uh, property management entrepreneurs out there. It's an industry that people do not think is exciting or, or sexy. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I would love to see just more of them. Are entrepreneurs born or bred? I would say, like everything, I think it's a mix. I think, being good at it is definitely bred. I was not born being good at this. It's something you can learn. I think wanting to do it and finding the life of an entrepreneur enjoyable is probably closer to born because like, it's not very fun or appealing like from an objective standpoint. And I think you have to be someone who, I think as I described it, you have to be someone who values the high peaks regardless of how deep the lows are over like the average, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that actually oddly does make a ton of sense. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. Last question, man. What is the one piece of advice that somebody had given you on day one of founding Castle? Oh, 
just chill out. Don't worry about it so much. For sure. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have listened to them. But if I had listened, it would have made a big difference. Most things that we were super worried about turned out to not really matter. And I'm sure most things I'm really worried about now will turn out to not really matter as well. Doesn't mean you can't worry about them at all. That worry is part of what helps get you there. But I think I was way more stressed out than I needed to be in the very early days. Man, entrepreneurship is a head trip, man. Hey, Max, where can folks go if they want to read a little bit more about Castle and what you guys are up to? Absolutely. So best place to go is check out our website. That's entercastle.com, E-N-T-E-R-C-A-S-T-L-E.com. We've got a lot of info up there, but I'd also highly recommend uh, you pop in your info so someone will team from our team will give you a call. We are not aggressive salespeople. If you put in your info and you just say, hey, look, I'm not even going to be a customer, but I want to learn more about what you guys are doing. We love that. So uh, please reach out. Well, guys, this was a great interview. Max and Castle are one to watch. A lot of ambition, a lot of hustle and execution here. Max, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a lot of fun. Jordan, always a pleasure. This was a blast. 